Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bible, will you turn with me to Isaiah 59, or today's text is printed, I think they're on page 9 in your bulletin. Mostly want to focus on verses 20 and 21, but we'll just read this chapter. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation. But it is far from us, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he'll render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your, off- of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Moving us by that spirit, Lord, as we hear this word. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start by just telling you kind of what prompted this sermon. One is just life events. We are rapidly coming up on the 10-year anniversary of planting Trinity Church. It's kind of hard to believe. And I've also got two kids graduating from high school this year, so I've just been kind of thinking a lot about transitions, about turning the page from one chapter to the next, the realization that the book has a back cover. The second thing that prompted this message, not just thinking about transitions in light of life events, I've also been watching over this last year, as you all have too, just the frantic energy of people who are kind of living in times that sound a lot like verses 14 and 15. I mean, it's weird. Like, you read this, it could have been written this week. 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. Truth stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. If you depart from evil, you make yourself a prey. And people are, you know, many Christians are just feeling the deterioration of our society. And there's this urgent question. We have to do something. What are we going to do? So I've been thinking about this. You know, if time is limited, and it is limited, the pages are turning. And if there's so much right now that is clamoring urgently for action, or maybe we should say reaction, here's the question I've been pondering. What does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? What does he want us to invest in? And I want to give you an answer. There might be other answers, obviously. But I want to give you an answer today that I hope is going to stretch all of our thinking. And here's, here's what I want to talk about. I want to suggest to you today that the most crucial investments you can make, the most crucial investments you can make right now, may be not in your own life, or even in the lives of your children, but rather the investments you can make right now in the lives of your children's children. That's what I want to talk about today. And when I say children's children, to be clear, I do not mean merely biological offspring. I certainly do mean you know, biological children. I just mean God's people two generations from now. And in fact, I'm going to lean on that a little bit for a second. I believe we need to repent as a church not just Trinity, but just as a Christian church today, repent of the individualism that does not see that we all are one generational body. If you only think in terms of your family, you are missing something about the kingdom of God. That is a very individualistic way to think. We all, not just here at Trinity, but throughout the Christian world, we are all one generational body. And that is why we all are to take responsibility for our generations. Look around this room. All these kids are all of our kids. You realize this? This is the future body of Christ. They are our generation. So it isn't just biological offspring. What are we investing in our children's children? And that brings us to verses 20 and 21. And I want to point out just two things. Well, actually, I actually want to point out really one thing in the text. I want to talk about the, the, the obvious generational principle that's in this text. And then I want to talk a little bit later about generational practice. But let's just take a moment and look at this generational principle here. There's a very typical move here to what you see many places in the prophets in the Old Testament. So from about the year 800 to about the year 400, there was this like 400 years of writing prophets. And what you'll see very often in these prophets is they will give descriptions of just ruins created by sin. And they just use graphic language, just, just rubble and smoking ruins left by sin. Israel's sin, especially, but the sins of the nations. And that's pictured here. This is an awful scene. And the prophets will then turn their attention from the ruins to a new creation that God is going to do. And God's answer to this mess of Israel's sin, you know, the horrors in Jerusalem and the cities of the nations, God's answer to this mess is this redeemer, you see there in verse 20, this savior who, as you kind of see there, you know, this savior, and the prophets talk about this in many different ways, he's going to pay for the sins of God's people. He's going to atone for their sins. And he's going to do something else that Moses could never do. He's going to put the Holy Spirit of God inside of people and change them from the inside out. You know, you can give law from Mount Sinai all day long, and it's glorious. But it doesn't change people from the inside out. But the redeemer is going to, God's going to put his spirit in people through the Redeemer. So that's the new creation. Our sins are going to be paid for, and the spirit's going to come and fall upon all flesh. Now, I want you to notice 
in verse 21, that this work of grace that is promised, now we know, who, who's, who's the Redeemer? You know, this is like a Sunday school answer. It's obviously Jesus, and he's the one who poured out the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that the Old Testament prophets tell us that that work of grace, that for them was in the future, we're now living in it. That covenanted work of grace, that is to say, God prom- he binds himself to do this. This cannot fail because God cannot lie. This covenanted work of grace, this covenanted work of the Spirit, occurs over generations. It's a generational work of God. And I want to just offer us, as we think about this generational principle, God's powerful work of the Holy Spirit is over generations. I just want to, I want to just notice some kind of important reminders here. First of all, this reminds us, this generational principle, that God's grace reaches all we are and all that's ours. God's grace reaches all we are and all that's ours. And I want you to just think about this with me for a minute. God's grace, God's saving power and mercy and love and goodness, when, it's, when it moves in the life of a person, it doesn't destroy any part of their humanity. It doesn't destroy any part of who they are created to be, including their relationships. Now, you'll sometimes hear people say, well, didn't Jesus say he's going to come and bring a sword and set you know, the mom against the daughter and the father against the son and all this? Well, yes, there is one sense in which if following Jesus puts you in a conflict of loyalty, you know, with anyone, you need to follow Jesus. And in that sense, you know, it could be that Jesus is going to disrupt your relationships a bit. But basically what you see in the Bible is that when God's grace gets into people's lives, his grace gets into their relationships because that's part of who they are. God's grace just starts restoring things like marriages and parent-child relationships and friendships and, yea, even slave-master relationships in that first century context. God's grace starts restoring all of us and all that is ours. God, God claims everything about you when he, when, he, when he gets hold of you with his grace. He claims your personality. He claims your gifts. He claims all your stuff, <laughs> all your possessions. He claims all of your relationships. He claims all your circles of influence. He claims all your domains where you, you know, kind of have jurisdiction in your life. He claims the fruit of your fields, and he claims the fruit of your body. Grace just restores nature. Grace is not against nature, it's against sin. So when God gets into your life, it starts dealing with the sin in your life, and it starts restoring all that you are and all that is yours. And having created natural generational life, God created human beings to live generationally, grandparents, parents, children, children's children, and so on. Having created that, that's part of nature, God then brings that generational life into the new creation. And you have these crazy moments. In the Bible, for example, when the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your household. Because God's grace reaches all we are and all that's ours. Herman Bobbink says this really beautifully in his Reformed Dogmatics. He says, God's covenant of grace does not leap from individual to individual, but perpetuates itself organically and historically. It accommodates itself to times and occasions appointed by the Father as creator and sustainer. You notice that? God's grace accommodates itself to the things appointed by the, by the creator and sustainer of human life. God's covenant of grace is never made with a solitary individual, but always also with his or her descendants. It is a covenant from generations to generations. So God's grace reaches all we are and all that's ours. That's the first reminder here. But another thing in this generational principle 
This means, dear saints, that God loves, secondly, God loves young saints. Yea, even unborn saints. So God's grace, generational principle, God's grace reaches all we are and all that's ours, but that means, secondly, that God loves young saints. He even loves unborn saints. I'm going to be very bold here. I know there are Christians who disagree with me, and I disagree with them, and I'm just going to lay it out there. Our children and our children's children are the Lord's. They are under the grace of God. They are under the law of God. How on earth are you going to teach your child you should obey the Lord if that Lord is not his or her Lord? They belong to God. The scriptures are very clear about this. And in fact, to teach them that they are under the grace of God and they are under the law of God is part of Christian faithfulness. It is unfaithful to teach otherwise. It is unfaithful to deny that they belong to the Lord. In fact, if you are not teaching, and it's a matter of neglect too, if you're not teaching your children and your children's children, you are the Lord's. You are under his law. You are under his grace. If you are not teaching them that, beloved, listen, you are catechizing them in unbelief. Do we understand that? There's no two ways about this. If your children are not being raised in faith, they are being raised in unbelief. You are either catechizing them in what is true of them in the Lord, or you are, even without saying anything, catechizing them in what is false, which is that they are not somehow the Lord's. Well, aren't they supposed to? How do we know if they're the Lord's until they believe, Pastor? I'll be honest. I find that question increasingly silly. How do, you, how do I know my kids are really Christians until they've actually shown some kind of fruit of faith in their life? Beloved, here's why I think that is a silly question, because the only thing faith can stand on is a sure word from God. A word from God that establishes, not because I say so, because he says so, that establishes my standing with him and my identity with him. When God says to me, you're mine, then I can say I believe it. When God speaks his grace, then I have something to believe. How, what are our children responding to if there is no promise to them? And if we take that away, if we, even just by not talking about it, take it away, then I must say, you know, we, there should be no surprise if our children eventually start to act like the unbelievers we have taught them to be. It grieves me working with kids raised in Christian homes. They are now the unbelievers their parents taught them to be. By questioning their salvation, denying their baptism, treating them as on the porch of God's house, rather than totally at the table with the Lord. And the fallout from that, then, is the unbelief that you've trained into them for all the years of their life. And I have to talk to these kids, and they're so confused, and it's often so hostile to Christianity, because they have been left out on the porch, with no understanding of who, where they stand with God. The foundation of Christian parenting... It's all we've got, beloved. Otherwise, what do we have? I mean, I don't know how to even think about parenting without this. The foundation of Christian parenting is that our children are not ours. And they are not theirs. They are the Lord's. His love, his faithfulness is the basis of everything in their life. From their first seed of faith to the full flower of obedience, it is the love and faithfulness and promise of God that is the foundation. Are they real Christians? Can we really say these young saints are real Christians? Beloved, are my, are my children real millers? Are they real citizens of the United States? 
It is a surrender to the spirit of our age to say that if you are born into something that you did not personally choose, it's not real. That is the zeitgeist. That is the spirit of the age. And it should not be in the church. Yes, you can be born into something that you don't personally choose, and it is absolutely real. That's why you can eventually believe it and choose it. God loves his young saints. He loves even the unborn saints. We haven't met yet. His grace reaches all we are and all that's ours. He loves young saints, even unborn saints. Thirdly, in this generational principle, in God's story, you'll notice, in God's story, there's a lot more to your story than your little story. In God's story, there's a lot more to your story than your little story. You're part of something. Children's children. Children's children's children. You're part of something that extends, the Bible says, to a thousand generations. The love of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord endures how long? few weeks, few months, a generation, ten generations. The love of the Lord endures forever. That's what we're part of. And that, dear saints, as we you know, wrestle with, yeah, we're in challenging times. I don't know if they're particularly more challenging than other times in history, but they're challenging times. But when we think about the fact that when I'm, when I'm part of God's story, there's a lot more to my story than my little story. What I start to realize is this should start making all of us a lot less narcissistic, for one thing, and a whole lot more patient. Y'all need to calm down. Sometimes the reason y'all are freaking out is because you run on the timeline set by CNN and Fox News. You really do. you got a five-minute attention span, just like everybody else in social media. You need to step back. You're part of God's story. Slow down. The fruit of your life is not all about what's happening in your life. You might be planting seeds right now that you don't even know. You're just going to put those seeds in the ground, and some generation later, God's going to bring the fruit. That's okay. That's okay. It's God's story. His work takes time. We are so conditioned, and this text challenges it. We are so conditioned to be impatient and want it now and so short-sighted, you know. And it's that, it's that impatience and that short-sightedness that is the very reason why the culture around us more and more has no generational shelf life. I think one of the most frightening things to me, honestly, about what's going on in our world right now is most of what our culture is celebrating has absolutely no generational shelf life at all. You cannot build a lasting civilization on raw individualism. If people are not living for something bigger and longer than their tiny little lives, that is the end of civilization. And we're a part of this thing that's just going to last forever. And so there's a certain kind of chill about Christianity. Like, you know what? We're stuck. The shelf life of Christianity is like forever. And that's how we think. That's how we invest. I, I often go back to uh, Sven Brinkmann's unbelievably powerful statement. He says, maybe it's not so important to answer the question, who am I? Maybe it's more important to answer the question, what am I a part of? That's how Christians think. In God's story, there's a lot more to your story than your little story. So now that I've laid out the generational principle with those three kind of sub-points, now I want to just talk for a minute with you guys, and this is just so much on my heart, about generational practice then. Let's move to some practice. And what I want to do is I want you all to think for a minute like grandparents. And then I want to ask you guys to think for a minute like grandchildren. All right, so we're going to start. I want you guys to sort of like, you know, you can close your eyes if you want, but I just want you to think of like grandparents. So you guys, you thinking like grandparents right now? Okay. Some of you are like, bring it on. Think like grandparents. Now here's what I want to say to you grandparents. Think like a grandparent. Here's what I want to say to you as a grandparent. Live every day. This is practical. Live every day like you and your children are going to die. Live every day like you and your children are going to die. 
In his book, Measuring the Orchard, Jeff Surratt gives the parable of two farmers that were competing to be the best apple grower. Who could be the best apple grower? And the first farmer started working on creating the perfect apple tree, like beyond the second, like just no, no close rival. Make a perfect apple tree, just phenomenally beautiful and fruitful. And he just invested and invested in that. The second farmer didn't invest in that. He actually focused on getting the fruit from each tree and using that fruit each year to plant more trees. And over time, here's what happened. The first farmer grew an absolutely sublime apple tree. It was the best apple tree, I mean, for a thousand miles around. It was an extraordinary apple tree, and eventually it maxed out of its lifespan and it became like other apple trees. And he had no answer for the question, what's next? The other apple farmer never reached that kind of crazy, extraordinary beauty with his apple tree. But he ended up not with an apple tree, but an orchard. And he passed that orchard on to his children and his children's children. And the point of this parable, so powerfully expressed in a little book called Next, is this. There is no success without succession. There is no success without succession. So grandparents, here's my question. Are our children being equipped to raise their children in the ways of God's kingdom? That's the question. Remember I said it's not just biological offspring. Think of ourselves as this generation of the body of Christ, this generation of God's people. Are our children being equipped to train up their children in the ways of God's kingdom? I just want to think about that for a minute as we think like grandparents, just for a minute. A couple of questions. Is it possible, dear saints, that we are hindering our children's children by investing too little in our current children, like the generation right after us? Are we investing too little, perhaps, in this generation? You know, the Bible, it says right here, my word, my spirit that are in your, my, my spirit that's on you, my words in your mouth. And, and, you know, one thing we need to just really ask ourselves is, am I full of the word and spirit? How on earth are you going to train up the next generation to train up the following generation if you yourself are not deeply in the word and, you know, full of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes, you know, part of the reason, beloved, why you as a saint right now are seeking to walk in the spirit and seeking to know the word of God is for the children's children. They need it. You don't even know what influence you might have as you walk in the spirit and are full of the word of God as you then are interacting with the children's children or at least the children who then will interact with the children's children. So just being full of the word and spirit ourselves. And then Deuteronomy 6, man, you shall teach these things to your children. Write them on the doorposts and lintels of your house. You shall write them on your hand, on your forehead. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You've got to be teaching. You've got to be teaching. I, look, I, no, you don't need to tell me this is hard. I work like 80 hours a week. I, I, I have such a difficult time. I spend more time on y'all than I do on my family sometimes. That's the honest truth. To their loss. Don't tell me you're too busy. I don't want to hear it. You have got to teach your children. I'm not saying it has to be anything crazy. I'm not saying you have to like teach them you know, tomes of theology. But if you are not having conversations with your children about God and about the kingdom and about the Bible and about why it even matters, somebody's going after their heart. Somebody's got their guts, man. There's no neutral in this world. And so we speak to them the story and we, and we live in front of them. We just... We just, you 
know, we rejoice in God, and, and we got to be careful how we do this, man. Because you, I mean, you know my story. I grew up in a kind of Christianity was, oh, it was just so dark. And there needs to be joy. You know, it's not just information. It's not just, you know, a bunch of cutesy Sunday school Bible stories. It's, it's, it's the joy of God. It's the fact that he's real and he's, he's beyond awesome. And he's, he's winning and his enemies will be under his feet. And it just, there's fire in your belly about it. And, and you enjoy it together, you know. And, 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 and also, don't, don't teach pessimistically. I, I, get, I, get, I get so tired, and I see it myself too. I get tired of hearing parents who are just so pessimistic about the world and so pessimistic about their kids. I listen to Christian parents talk about their kids. I'm like, wow, you know, I'd hate to be your child. If you bitched about me like you bitch about that child, I wouldn't even want to be around you. Come on. And about the future. I mean, for you people of God, it's, who? I mean, yes, what's going on in the halls of power in our world matters, but it doesn't matter as much as God and his kingdom matters. That's the big story. You should be cheerful thinking about the future. God is he's Lord. He's Victor. There should be like celebration and, and hopefulness. And some of you it's teaching, but it's isolated teaching. You're, you know, you hide. You hide in your house. I don't know why you hide. Are you introverted? Are you, are you just tired? Are you, you know, what is it? You hide. Your children and your children's children need the body of Christ. They need to see these are great people. You know why my kids love the Lord? Because of you. Because of me, but because of you. My kids look around and they have so many people in this church. They love their peers. They love the adults. They got, my sons have men they look up to. My daughters have women they look up to. You ask my kids who they admire. They're talking about Christians. They're talking about men and women of God. They, they, just, they love being around them because they're cool and they're fun and they're interesting and they're human. They're not weird. But they love God. That's... It's a big deal. Are we hindering them by investing too little? Some of you are investing too little because you're full of wounds. Look, here's the th- All of us have parental wounds. All of us give parental wounds. I have wounded my kids in ways that will break my heart to the grave. My parents left me bleeding in certain ways. They would tell you this. They're on the live stream. They would tell you this. It's okay. They would tell you this. Nobody lives through life without parental wounds. If you can't parent because I'm wounded, then you'll never parent. The glory of the gospel as it works through generations, beloved, is that it heals the wounds. It redeems the wounds. It takes the mess you got from the generation before and the generation before them, and it redeems the wounds. We're not stuck in grace. We're always moving forward in grace, and you can live despite the wounds, in a way that is redemptive and that is constructive. Sometimes we're just investing too little, thinking like grandparents still. Or sometimes we're investing too much. I mean, you know, I'm at that age now. I didn't think I'd ever get here, but here I am. you got to let your kids go. If your kids are going to raise your children's children, you got to let your children go. (laughs) There are no children's children if your kids are living with you. Can I just put that out there? It's awkward for the kids to make children's children if they're living with you. You've got to let them go. It's part of the deal. And you don't just let them go. You help them serve God in their time, their culture, their context. Their story is not going to be your story, and it's okay. There's just such inflexibility in some Christian parents that insist that my children's story has to be a repetition of my own. It won't be. You've got to let that go. 
Let them serve God in their time, their specific context, the particular challenges they face. Don't overinvest. Let them figure out what God wants them to do in their time. So we thought like grandparents. Now, I want to ask you to think like grandchildren. Shift gears. You've been thinking about your children's children. Now shift gears and imagine you're one of the children's children. Here's what I want to say to you as you think like grandchildren told the grandparents, live every day like you and your children are going to die. To you as you think like grandchildren, live every day like your parents and grandparents are going to die. Now the cultural line, I know, the cultural line is it can't happen soon enough. Because those blasted parents and grandparents and all their baggage and all the boomers and all the mess, they're the reason, they're between us and our freedom. That's the cultural line. Can I ask you guys a question? If you're under the age of 25... Answer this question for me. How do you set a tree free? How do you free a tree? Well, that's easy. You cut it off at ground level and let it roll around the yard, obviously. Wrong. You want to free a tree? You plant the tree. You stick its roots deep, 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 deep in the soil. And the more roots and the further into that soil it goes, the freer it is to just create monster fruit. That's how you free a tree. Now, please listen. I want to say something to you, and I really pray the Holy Spirit will make this stick. You cannot have roots and unlimited choices. The definition of having roots is a choice has been made. There's no more choices here. I've reached the end of choosing. I have chosen this. I am here. And this matters because I don't even think, my kids and I often talk about this. It's like the fish who can't see the water. You are living in a world that makes endless options feel normal. It used to be you kind of had to be where your body was. You don't anymore. You can be anywhere all the time. You, can, you have literally endless options, endless entertainment options. I mean, just the options. The, you have the ability to always be flicking to something else. Usually you had to use a remote. And like you only had, Even there you only had so many channels. There's no limit to the channels now. They call these things infinity pools because you get on, you know, in the world we now live in, to have endless choice. It's just obvious. Nobody would even think to question it anymore. That is the end of rootedness. And as Christians, beloved, my younger brothers and sisters, you have got to be able to say, this is my God. This is my king. This is my faith. This is my family. This, these are my people. This is my friend. This is my husband. This is my wife. This is my place. This is my home. This is my field. This is the kingdom I'm a part of. This is my story. This is my mission. This is my purpose. I'm planting my roots. I'm not shopping for a God. I'm not shopping for a faith. I'm not shopping for a law to obey. I have found it in God and Christ. And I'm putting my roots down. That's freedom. That's freedom. And you'll become more of yourself. I'm not yelling at you. You'll become more of yourself precisely by rooting yourself in what God has given and ordained for you. That's how you become yourself. That's how a tree grows. And it starts with the community of elders 
in which God planted you. You can leave, you know, I know, I remember this. When I was 18, I was like, please, please, just, I need to leave home. You can leave home as one of two things. You can either leave home as a runner or a runaway. You guys know what a runner is? A runner is this little thing that comes out of a tree. And it's attached to the parent root of the tree. And it kind of like runs along the ground. And eventually it kind of plants itself. And it plants its own roots. And eventually it no longer needs a mother tree because it's got its own roots and it grows into a tree. That's true independence. That's being a runner. Or you can leave home as a runaway. And so many kids leave home as a runaway. They are not planted. They do not have roots. They saw through all the roots that connect them to their parents, their grandparents, their community, their elders of every kind, tradition, all the old stuff that's irrelevant now because we're in the 21st century. And they saw through the roots and they have to go out and literally start over with no root system. They try to run away. Can I just say to you guys, when you're young, I know how hard this can be to hear, but you will never regret it. Drink in what wisdom you can in the community, not just at Trinity. In whatever community of elders God has planted you in, drink in what wisdom you can because this is not going to be with you much longer. Do you know what I would give to have a conversation with my grandparents now? And I'm watching my parents and I realize the time's coming when those phone calls are going to stop. Drink it in, man. Rebel, rebel against the constancy of choices. Stop scrolling. Just take a month off. I'm serious. Take a month off. Take a month off of video games. Take a month away from social media. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it just keeps you scrolling. You know what it is. Maybe it's music. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Whatever you're scrolling, stop scrolling. Take some time away from it and seek wisdom in these relationships before they're gone. And what you'll discover is that roots are restful. And rootlessness is exhausting. It feels like freedom from that tree rolling around the yard for a while. Until it starts to die. Because there's no roots. The question of your life, my dear young brother, sister, the question of your life is what's my place in God's story? And you're never going to know what your place in God's story is if you ignore the story leading up to your chapter. Live every day like your parents and grandparents are going to die, because they are. Well, I've probably said quite enough for one day. My pastoral hope, it just burns in me, is that more and more and more and more and more we would see grandparents worshiping with their grandchildren. Let's aim as a church not to be a two-generation church. I've been working on being a two-generation church. I know you have, too. I'm so tired of seeing Reformed churches lose their kids. I don't want to be a two-generation church. I want to be a three-generation church. In fact, I don't want, I, what, I, what I really want is I want to be a thousand-generation church. Amen. That's the biblical church in which every generation is full of expectation for what their God is going to do in their time. That's the vision. That's the vision. And God, we ask you to grant it because... Only you can. In Jesus' good name. Amen.